0: History Lecture 120, Rabbi B'lai we're haven't uh, usually broken up our topics into part one, part two, that's how it, this, this one fell. Uh, we're, we're now right in the middle of the Six-Day War as we find ourselves having captured Yerushalayim, Yerikodish, uh, and having conquered most of the, what, what's called the Yehuda v'shamron, Judea and Samaria, uh, which have the common thread, both Yerushalayim and the areas to the north and south, were conquered not by the design of the Israeli army. And there were, there, was, there were some rogue troops out there who went in, and then once they were successful, the commanders didn't want to turn them back. And I quoted Uzi Narkis yesterday. He said this was not, the end result was uh, something not anyone had planned. Uh, except to um, so that's, we, we've done the southern front, Egypt, in four days. They captured the Sinai Peninsula Gaza Strip. Uh, we've done the Eastern Front with Jordan, and in a similar period of time, around four days, by Thursday afternoon, Yerushalayim, including the old city, is in, is in the hands of the uh, of, of the Israelis, together with the biblically central lands of Yehudah B'Shemron, much of the Tanakh takes place in the cities of Shechem, Shiloh, Hebron, and uh, Har-Grizim, Har-Eval, and everything uh, in, this, in this area. How about in the north? So uh, going back a few days, on the evening of June 5th, so there had already been a day of fighting in the south and east. So on the evening of June 5th, the Israeli Air Force attacked Syrian airfields. you remember that uh, the attack initially against the Egyptian Air Force, later against Jordan and Iraq? 350-something? You're saying the Syrian Air Force? They destroyed two-thirds of its fighting strength. Two thirds. Pretty good. Because again, you got the psychological advantage. Even the, the surviving third is not so keen about uh, taking on the Israelis. Now, for the next, that was the, that was the first day of the war. The next several days, Syria lay low. And the intensive fighting actually did not take place in the north. In the north. They were sort of uh, waiting to see what would develop. And they didn't like what they were watching. Uh, none of the Arabs were very happy at this point. Um, there were a few minor attacks, they were all repulsed. Uh, Israel, for its part, was not interested in engaging Syria. They were happy that the Syrians were going, were, 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 were controlling themselves and uh, the, 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 the thinking was, certainly with the top brass, was that that was, that was one of the fights they were not gonna have this war during this war. And um, they were besieged by representatives from the north, they being the Knesset, the powers that be, were, were um, inundated with requests from the members of the north saying you have to fight, you have to go into strategically critical Golan Heights. You know, the high ground is everything in war. What you can, you, we, we can look from uh, the, the s- uh, s- certain uh, scattered high points around the Golan Heights. On a clear day, you can see well down into mainland, mainstream Israel. And uh, it's scary and especially as Weaponry and, and technologic te- te- technologies advance, so uh, that they they could look right into Israel and target their missiles accordingly, and so and and of course the farmers in the north personally knew what that was to have to endure with the Syrian sniper power uh, and 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 the constant barrage that they that they'd encountered from the Syrians for 19 years since the creation of the state. So they said, "Please, now is your chance. It's wartime. Wartime." Most rules fall to the side and you can do stuff, you can get things accomplished, which you can't do, and you certainly can't negotiate you can't you can't accomplish the negotiations in diplomacy. So they said go in and attack. And finally, on Thursday evening after the Southern and Eastern fronts were um, were both more or less about more or less resolved, those, the, the, that area of the, of the, of the war was more, more or less resolved. Israel decided, yes, we're going to take advantage of the war. We're going to combat the ongoing Syrian um, hostility. On Friday, June 9th, the Israeli offensive was approved. Um, the intelligence that we got from Eli Cohen proved, as we said, very, very helpful uh, in, in locating the, uh, the, identity, the, the, the whereabouts of the bunkers, the Syrian bunkers, some of which were indeed hidden. Um, the fighting was fierce for the next two days going into Shabbos Kodesh uh, with heavy casualties uh, certainly the Syrians suffered but the Israelis had their own problems, they were very very difficult um, battles it was not, not, uh, people think of the six day war as just a, a, a free ride in Baruch paved the way the entire way, that's not, that's not accurate either, uh, the Israelis definitely had to work hard for it but by afternoon of Shabbos June 10th on the sixth day of the war, Syria was in active retreat they had lost and, and, and that was perceived and now they were running away. The next day, a ceasefire was signed and the six days of fighting come to a conclusion. That's a summary, um, maybe too brief, maybe not quite, doesn't pick up all the details, but it's a fairly effective summary of the this, this six miraculous day period um, of, of uh, modern history. And if you think about it, you're talking about what was absolutely a defensive war the Israelis did not start this. It started in 1964 with the, with the cutting off the water supplies and the closing of the Straits of Tehran, where it was inevitable that the Arabs were going, were going to attack Israel. And Israelis struck preemptively, but that was just to, that, that was just to get the advantage. Um, the world had expected Israel's annihilation. That would be the end. And far from that, the small state suddenly almost tripled its land mass you need to appreciate what that means. If you study the, the map of the state before 1967, it's especially along the central populated area, the coastline, it's a sliver, surrounded, I mean, again, as we keep saying, the half a cigarette away from the West Bank, it's surrounded by hostile Arabs. Suddenly now, you have this whole swath of land, much more stable. Uh, you have the Jordan Valley as a buffer zone between the hostile east not that it's that hostile. You have the Golan Heights now in their hands, which is this huge strategic advantage, Syrian retreat. You have the entire Sinai Peninsula, a massive amount of not very useful land in the modern, in the modern uh, scheme of things, but um, certainly a massive buffer zone between mainland uh, Egypt and Israel. Um, and Yavira You If suddenly Yerushalayim with the good stuff, back in, in, in the hands of the Jews, for the first time as a sovereign power, and as we've, we've already been critical of the state and the complexity of the state, but still it's Jewish sovereignty for the first time since the mm-hmm. 2,000 years earlier. Um, Yitzhak Rubin was not yet uh, the senior politician that he would be in the coming decades. He admitted, he said as follows, our airmen struck the enemy's planes so accurately that no one in the world understands how it was done. People seek technological explanations or secret weapons, but in the end, nobody has an answer. Um, the answer of the mainstream Israeli population was to celebrate their own military prowess, which is the tendency of modern man. We did it, we came, we fought, uh, we, uh, and to and take credit in, in, our, in our contemporary arrogance, um, few, other than obviously the religious oh, sector, was, few would admit to recognizing the Yad Hashem that I assert to you that if you study this, you can see nothing else other than miracle and divine intervention, battle after battle, episode after episode, you have to, it doesn't have to just be the account that we, we uh, summarized about uh, Givar Tachmoshe, ammunition ammunition Hill behind us. Uh, it's almost every part of the country um, was uh, given to us and... and um, despite the tremendous awe at what had happened, uh, the immediate results were not a, uh, like Chizkiyahu neglected to get up and sing Shira, the, the immediate results were not a, an outpouring of faith in a Kaddish Baruch overall. That being said, there was a minor Baljuva movement after this. And that was much bigger. Minor. In terms, of, in terms of demographics, you're talking about 11, 12 million Jews in the world, a trickle. It would maybe start. A, uh, a, a, a t- I will talk. We'll do an assessment of modern Bali, of the modern Balfour movement uh, that's coming up soon in a few days. But relative to what it could be and maybe should be by any uh, by, by our perspective here, after, after racing through history as we have this year, we'd think, "Wow, everybody should be you know running back the gates. We should be turning away the chuva and the prospective converts." That was not the case. That was not. That was not what happened. Um, okay. There are a lot of other things that happened to make the six day war not uniformly positive and to complicate matters in Israel that remains a complexity and, and a difficulty till today without any clear solutions other than Mashiach coming and resolving everything. Look, Israel suddenly found itself tripling its land mass. People were living on that land. They suddenly found themselves having inadvertently adopted. They didn't, they didn't expect to get anything. They expect to lose, and now they're suddenly finding all this new land land territory terrific, but with the land came the locals, the Arabs, approximately one million of them, suddenly on hostile soil. You've just just adopted a bunch of enemies. Uh, In the newly, as they like to say with politically charged rhetoric, conquered territories, the occupied territories, as, as the left wing likes to say, um, I mean, you, you know, the, the terminology, the jargon is so loaded. In all of America is technically occupied territory. You're living on Indian reservations, don't you know, Down, in downtown Woodland Hills, right? So, so go figure, but okay. So this is what makes for a successful um, uh, propaganda campaign. When you get the world to think of the West Bank as occupied territory, uh, it 's all in the formulation, then, then, then you see that the Israelis are the hostile, uh, aggressive, aggressive um, um, tyrants and, and, and these new people who are now in this land that they don 't want to be a part of uh, are victims. Um, Israel will offer uh, wh- what 's going to be with these, with some million new Arabs living on conquered land well let 's talk about it locally. In what's called occupied Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, and in the Golan, Israel decided. Golan is not is not widely um, uh, settled by Arabs. It's mostly empty empty tracts of land. Uh, but East Jerusalem definitely had a lot of Arabs. Um, these people who lived in this, these particular regions were all full Israeli citizenship. Uh, and indeed, Israel. What's called you have to know what the terminology means. Israel annexed East Jerusalem and the Golan Heights. What that means is, they said, these are now fully integrated parts of the state of Israel. They redrew the maps, they reconfigured the municipality, we won this in a defensive war fair and square, and now it's ours. That's very different, they did not annex the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula. Different relationship, they conquered it, it was under their stewardship, but they didn't integrate it they did not offer citizenship to the locals who live there that's the problem right I'm just, it's it's certainly leading to several layers of problem but certainly this is part of the issue you know, how do you have a democrat de- democratic state in this mess that they call modern israel um and this is this is i'm, I'm describing it so, so my my basic point here the argument that i'm i'm, I'm asserting is that the Sixth Day war is a mixed blessing it, it creates the immensely intricate, complicated, not uniformly great, many ways tragic um, situation in which we find ourselves till today. Um, few of these, mostly East Jerusalem Arabs, accepted. Um, some of them who did were branded traitors, collaborators, some were murdered. Because, you know, to accept Israeli citizenship is to give yourself over to the enemy. That was not tolerable. And so, whether they liked it or not, most of the most, I mean, a great victim of the modern day of the modern day is the uh, so-called Palestinian, who's in a lose-lose situation. And you remember what happened to them with the refugee camps in 1948 in Jordan and Lebanon and the Gaza Strip and Egypt. So they were in these refugee camps. They were a political pawn of the various powers to be to say, look at how evil Israel is, because look at all these poor refugees in squalor in the refugee camps. Who keeps keeps them there? Oh, that's the Arab powers, but they're pawns. And then it's not much better when in this war where they're just here. Where are they going to be? What are they going to do? Well, you know, you take Israel. No, you can't do that. So what are they going to do? You're going to be basically foreigners in your new land. It's tricky because the tendency, the temptation, as loyal Jews as we all are, is to demonize all Arabs. Um, we know that it's such a complicated situation where there are a lot of wonderful Arabs, very nice people sometimes, and we have a lot in common. I've mentioned this before, that Islam and Judaism are extremely close, uh, in many ways religiously much closer uh, than, um, than Reform Judaism is, is to real Judaism. But, the, um, but the, the, the political reality is it can't be avoided when you know that on any given day, at there are not just one or two such stories, you hear about a very nice gardener who worked for the Jews for 25 years and had wonderful working relationship with all of his employers and suddenly Allah comes to him or Muhammad comes to him in a dream and tells him to strap some explosives to, uh, into a vest and, and, and to go down into a, into, into a restaurant on Menuuda Street uh, and, and so then it creates an automatic distrust. Even the good guys are looked at suspiciously understandably. So that's the situation in which we find ourselves. Um, There would be some 300,000 Arab residents of the West Bank who fled to Jordan mostly and and some to Syria, new refugees. Um, They joined the growing number of refugees and who sometimes make it up, but sometimes it's accurate, uh, who who count themselves um, as such as Palestinian refugees, looking forward to some kind of final uh, negotiations where they could come back. Um, this part of the six day war is also not often heard. Six days of fighting took place in Israel and in around Israel. Um, but mobs attacked Jewish neighbors all, o- neighborhoods all around the world, particularly in Muslim ruled societies. Not all the Jews left Muslim ruled societies in, in the 40s and 50s. We had all these discussions of the influx of immigration, but a lot of Jews stayed back in the old country. Um, so now you have pogroms as far and wide in places like Egypt, Yemen, Lebanon, Tunisia, Morocco. Schools were burned, residents assaulted. Um, some murders, often not murders, but lots of violence, um, but often death. So that, for example, a pogrom, this is around the Six-Day War, and you did because the Six-Day War was such the focus, and everybody was fixated on that, you didn't notice, for example, that Tripoli, an attack left 18 Jews dead. It's also part of the story. Uh, in in um, Egypt, 800 Egyptian Jews were arrested. Their property was confiscated by the government. 800 Jews. Um, 7,000 Egyptian Jews were expelled. Um, many of them carrying a satchel on their back. Where? Israel. Mostly. Not everybody actually wound up staying in Israel. But. Probably um, it is, but not with, your, not with all of your worldly possessions okay, crammed into yeah, a, a satchel that you have to sling, sling over your shoulder. Usually it's nicer nice to get out where you can transfer your bank account from one state to the next. Builds character. That's true if you have the U.S. your mind to, uh, to see it through. Uh, there would be, not just in the Muslim-ruled land, there would be attacks against Jews in the communist countries, um, in retaliation. Um, that meant for example 11,200 Jews um, from Poland alone immigrated to Israel in the following year because of the attacks there, in Poland, in Poland? Uh, isn't that wild? yes pretty complicated series of events and I'm, I'm trying to feature all these other odds and ends because the ramifications were, 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 were far and wide um, there was definitely a euphoria of the moment I'll describe it Um, People really did feel, especially in the national religious world, which is very messianic by nature. We'll talk about that world as well. We'll focus on that. Uh, The Day War changes everything for them too. They really felt Mashiach was right right around the corner. He may be still. Um, There was a euphoria. Rav Shach did not agree with it. Rav Shach was was a garol hedor at this stage. Uh, He was ambivalent about everything going on. Could only see things that the average person often misses. His tefillah throughout the war was as follows. I mean, he explained his, his, how he davened and he didn't know how, exactly what should he say. And here's what he said. If I daven that the army should win, the problem is is that the honor of the secular will increase. And that will be at the expense of Kabut mine. can't daven that they should win. I mean, even though that's exactly what wound up happening is they thought, we won this and we don't need a kind of a kind of a sentiment. Um, but he knew that and he said so for them just a daven blanket they should win That's gonna be a chalashem. get can't daven for that Of course, I don't daven chas v'shalom that even I have to daven them, not one soldier soldier could die. I care about every Jew So as a religious Jew, you're really you're really mixed. What are you supposed to do? He says he says like this Ata hako yeho. He says Hu, you have all you you you're, you're capable of everything I, I daven that no Jew should be even injured, and I daven that coupled Shemayim should be increased. I'm davening for the impossible. I'm telling you. In our eyes, in our eyes, eyes Mera. I heard stories that you couldn't even buy a pair of that one after the six-day war. That's the story that I, I, That's and nice. That. I think it's greatly exaggerated. You know, in Kiruv we do that. We have license has a license that you could actually make up stories for Kiruv purposes. I think we do. And I'm not interested in that in this class, because I don't think it's... I think there was something to it, I think it's greatly exaggerated, is my point. And I don't think we do ourselves any favor by those exaggerations. Maybe they leave you inspired in a sheer momentarily. But I, I think you get disconnected from real politic. I don't think you, you understand the world outside when you tell too many kiryu uh, stories. You know, because then you want to say, well, well, then how come all these people aren't from? How come there's such a silly, to the different world? And you're naive. That's not helpful either. But there's a lot of Dati Lumi there. There's, uh, I mean, well, what? I hear like it's about 50% now that's religious or Dati. Where? 50% of what? In Israel. Of Dati Lumi. At least just somewhere traditionally. You're thinking about the total Jewish uh, population in, in Israel? The traditional. Of they no, 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 no. You're misunderstanding the stats. If there were that many people, you would see much greater religious representation in the Knesset. All you have to do is look at the last results. The religious parties are, are, are down, down, down. The um, no, when they call themselves misorti, they mean they have warm fuzzies about being Jewish. They might like Shabbos candles. They're anything but dati lumi. It's They're very not the atheists, though. What? The Sisi said that there's much less atheists. Much less atheists. They believe in a kaddish baruch but you know, there's a big, there's a far uh, distance between somebody who believes in a kaddish baruch versus somebody who keeps Shabbos. It's not called dati. They feel. They connect. They enjoy. They like. They hate religion a lot. Of, they hate religious people a lot of the time. The same people who call themselves the Sarti had great antipathy for the Charedim and for the and for the settlers out there in 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 Yehuda B'Shom Rome. So, uh, not so Not not so poshut. And I don't know about the, the standing in line for filling. I, fill in, I, I just, you know I, I, it's not happening today. You know, okay, so there was an immediate euphoria. Rav Shach was not into it. It reminds me. Rav Shach's reactions remind me of the Chafetz Chaim after the Balfour Declaration. Looking around and seeing what the other person did, not know, what's the euphoria? Has Mashiach actually come? Um, he said, with the capture of Harabais, when the Jews got Harabais, and you have that famous image of Shlomo uh, Shl- um, Goren, who I'm going to describe here. He was a Talmud Chacham, but extremely problematic personality, uh, who had upper courses to him too, and some of the things that he did and said. And he went up and blew the shofar on the Temple Mount. Not clear that he was allowed to go up there, and uh, said set, set, setting a precedent for other Jews to go up in the Temple Mount. Um, in any case, he blew the shofar. Rav Shach, he said, he broke out in tears. He said, now look at the chil, look at the hill, the desecration that's going to go on in Harabais. Look at the tumah, the, the, the secular are going to cause to the Makom Mikdash. We're not ready necessarily to go up there just yet. Let's purify ourselves before we before we start celebrating. In uh, again, the fighting ceased at in, on June tenth. eventually the truces were negotiated through june 11th and on Um, in september i I, i'm not i'm jumping to september but i'm going to backtrack i'm going to talk about what goes on the heart bias and the coastal all of that is going to be part of our story um but i'm now just focused on the immediate outcome of the war and what happened to the jews and their arab antagonists in september in what was called the khartoum arab summit the arabs agreed as follows. The resolution after the Six-Day War was as follows. There would be no peace. There would be no recognition with Israel. There would be no negotiation with Israel. Far from peace. No resolution after the Six-Day War. They were angry and deeply humiliated and beware of humiliated Arab. One has to understand different cultures work differently. Honor features prominently in Arab culture. You insult Arab honor, they tend to do things like attack you in the middle of Yom Kippur. As they will, six years later, on the Yom Kippur War in 1973, in, retali- in retaliation for exactly this, to save face. Um, but there were changes. With all the rhetoric, with all the harsh terminology, actually things really did change with regards to the jews and their Arab antagonists from this point on the arabs shift now having lost so much ground i mean uh as as i quoted abe even the palestinians have never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity they would have been better off at every phase along the way to accept whatever they had now post six day war they were at a strategic disadvantage to say the least so now he started. To, he stopped hearing so much about questioning questioning Israel's existential legitimacy, because Israel had so clearly asserted itself and established itself as a as a force to reckon with, as we are here to 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 to, to, to for, for for perpetuity. Now the, the emphasis is shifting away from Israel as a as a as a presence. The focus now increasingly, and certainly still today, will be on the conquered territories, trying to delegitimate Israel in the eyes of the world because they're an occupying force, an aggressor, the new Nazi in the, in the image and the propaganda that they very effectively put out to the world. Now, to, to, to be fair, I mean, it's true that Israel has deplorable PR, um, but to be fair, the Arab propaganda machine works beautifully Large, to a large degree because it has a very receptive anti-Semitic audience in much of the world. Uh, it doesn't take much to convince people, even of complete falsehoods. Uh, and there's so many falsehoods. I don't know if you know, there's a famous picture that was taken, what was this? In, uh, I have all the details. Oh, in, in Gaza, the French, the French uh, yeah. TV camera? Yeah. Muhammad, right, the is yes. the catching the Israelis gunning down a 12-year-old. Only none of it happened. It was all propaganda. But till today, they did such an effective job. And, and France admits it. Everybody admits it. And nobody knows the truth. And what's left are just the images. And All oh, right, yeah, the Israeli soldiers, they killed 12-year-olds. Uh-huh, everybody knows it was on the news. And if it's on the news, it's real. Because, I mean, you know, that on the news, it's always accurate. The, um, and the weather. Yeah. Uh, speaking of accuracy, the... Um, the, uh, yeah, so now it's, it's, it's a question and it's an effective strategy because if you can demonize Israel as an occupying force, um, you, you've, you've, you've won tremendous in areas, of, tremendously in, 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 di- in the diplomatic front, uh, and a great sympathy then, um, you know, as uh, the, the former Prime Minister of England, Tony Blair's wife, Sherry Blair, she said, I, you know, I understand those suicide bombers, they're desperate. Poor people," she said, as she was the wife of the prime minister. And, and in England, in England especially, anti-Semitic, very anti-Semitic, known known for its hostility to Israel from the get-go. Um, we certainly have a backstory with them. Uh, you know that's understandable, but but this is part of the new campaign. Um, you can I have this on a not my own. It's not original, but somebody prepared a PowerPoint presentation. Of cartoons political cartoons from the 40s 50s 60s and 70s showing uh one of the popular metaphors for the struggle the so-called arab-israeli conflict and then well what was called before the six-day war the arab-israeli conflict and subsequently the arab-palestinian conflict just just the shift of terminology alone changes everything arab-israeli you suddenly have the, the israelis as the victims as the tiny david that's the metaphor I'm going to play on, against the Arab Goliath. But when the tables turn, and now it's the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, look who's Goliath all of a sudden. So, and, and, and you can trace this in the cartoons. All the pre-60 War cartoons posit Israel as the David, usually wearing the, the uh, temple cap and the, and, the, and the kibbutz sandals against the, the Goliath of the Arab world. But now suddenly it's the Palestinian with the keffiyeh on. He's the David against the aggressive um, Israeli Goliath. The whole the whole image is now turned around. Um, the poor beleaguered Palestinian against the evil conqueror. On November 22nd of 1967, UN adopts famously Resolution 242. Israel the, in the resolution till today it says Israel must withdraw from all recently conquered lands. Okay, they see no legitimacy in any of the lands that were acquired in the Six Day War. Which itself is not fair or rational. I mean, in other countries, in a, especially in a defensive war, you fought, you conquered, you keep it. America, the United States of America, is such land. So, why this should be somehow different? Well, that's because of the, uh, the, 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 the um, double standard that Israel is held to. Russian all, Russian. All, also, also Putin, also, Putin just goes into the Ukraine, and that's it. Fact on the ground. But Israel has to withdraw, and um, even though that's been that's been softened over the years, maybe Jerusalem's now been added, so maybe not all of Jerusalem. Uh, most of the American presidents have said we're not going to go back to um, six, pre-six-day war uh, borders. Most of the most of them, exactly my punchline. Most of them have said, "Okay, so it's different now. We'll have to redraw the lines. Uh, the security fence is not according to Six Day War um, uh, borders, so you know the lines will be different." It's the new admi- or the, the the current administration, the Obama administration, who does talk about radically, and, and, and as a chiddush, they talk about the uh, the, the pre-Six Day War borders. The um, also in Resolution 242, another significant piece, they formulate what's called land for peace which remains the dominant um, template, the dominant model of discussion around peace talks till today. Trade li- and, and, and is almost as a given, as an axiom, as the way that Israel will eventually win peace with its neighbors if they give up land. It's, um, it's taken as such an obvious uh, point, policy, it's questionable in its logic, as one of my right-wing teachers once said, um, a politically right-wing, he said, yeah, land for peace. Um, what is that analogous to? A mugger comes over and points a gun to your head and says, wallet, wallet for peace. You give me your wallet, I leave you alone. You can give him the wallet, he still may not leave you alone. He said, that's the, that's the setup of land for peace. Um, and we, we know, I mean, I, I, we'll, we'll talk about this in terms of, in terms of Arafat's rhetoric and, and many of the Arabs' rhetoric. Um, when they've given up land for peace, One wonders how stable that peace is. The 1979 Peace Accords, the Camp David Accords, with Egypt, very nice, this peace, but what about if Egypt, as Egypt is the most unstable, one of the most unstable of the regimes in the the neighborhood, um, what if they're overthrown by even, uh, you can imagine, a more radicalized uh, um, uh, regime, who say, oh yeah, we don't recognize any former treaties. Then what good, it's just a piece of paper, what good was that previous treaty? Anyway, land for peace is taken as a given. Wait, who did you say there was stable? Jordan. Jordan you said? I said yesterday, Jordan. Yeah, yeah Jordan's oh again. Yeah, presently, that's fluid. That can all change. Uh, you know, the left wing correctly would then say, "Okay, what's the alternative? How are you gonna make peace? Where, where, will there ever be peace? Do you have any vision for peace?" Which they correctly ask, and it's a rhetorical question, honestly, because yeah, Netanyahu they have no answer there's well, no just, they say these are the boundaries of the guidelines, the these are guidelines terms. we're willing to make some peace it has to be in the wrong terms that be used to us we have to be strong and they'll be used to us and they'll begrudgingly ultimately accept us yeah right they'll begrudgingly accept us uh I, again you know my my peace plan has a lot to do with tire and and chuva and that's you know getting out of this mess that we're in i, I don't see politics left wing or right wing as as, as as resolving any of this um article eight I'm going back now. In the 1949 armistice agreements with Jordan, I've mentioned this several times, what was called Article 8 in that agreement with Jordan had provided Jewish access to the Kotel Maravi, to the Western Wall. And um, for the next 18 years, we've mentioned many times the Jordanians refused to abide by it, but it was an ongoing issue. The Jews protested to the UN, they protested to America, uh, none of it helped. The Jordanians simply lied and didn't keep their promise um, Jews again we, we stood there just a few days ago Jews went to the rooftop of what's called the Diaspora Yeshiva today that was if they did those they, they were scary to go there because you could be hit by a sniper but uh, you'd look into the area of Karabais from where we saw they uh, did Birkas Kohanim there during the Slosh Regalim that's where Birkas Kohanim kind of a cramped spot but it, you, you work with what you got and that's what they did during those 19 years. Um, and now I'm going to go back, since we're talking about the Six-Day War, and probably the most thrilling part of the Six-Day War was this, uh, was, with, with, given Rav Shach's comments, its proviso and the problem of getting Harabais when the Jews are not spiritually prepared for it being a major problem. Um, but still. But still. It's Shabbos, right at, uh, the last day of the six days, June 10th. And the officers israel's been conquered but not opened up to the masses not opened up to the public uh they were still clearing um the rooftops of uh, hidden hiding snipers there were landmines in the city it was scary uh and there were officers, officers who were stationed at the coastal and most of you have been on tours with me so you've seen the um, Pre 67 Kotel, as it, as, so, as it was, this tiny little alleyway, not unlike the Kline Koso, uh where there was not very really so much space to Tadavid. The area that we picture as the Western Wall Plaza was all covered up. It was the Mugrabi Quarter, the Quarter of, of Arabs, mostly from the Mugrabi from North Africa. And they were there in the Mugrabi Quarter, stationed there, and they went inside the buildings, the Mugrabi buildings. That were attached, built right up to the Western Wall. And in there, in, in some of them, they found toilets right up against the coast cell. Or somebody wanted to say, flush with the coast cell. The, um, the decision was made by the army. Ben Gurion went there, he was outraged. The decision was made that they're going to get rid of this Mugrabi quarter that all 650 Arabs uh, would be evacuated from, their, um, from 135 homes. Because um, this is our chance. Because as we've said many times, you could do stuff in war that you'd never think about doing in peacetime. But in war, it's chaos. And they're thinking towards the future. They're, they're remembering that, and I've been tracing this now. I don't know if you, those of you who've been here consistently and, you, and, and you've heard this story told, think about the history of the Jews by their cosa. And even though it's not the holiest place in the world and we aspire to so much more and better on top of the Cosell, still, the difficulty that we had, remember the whole fiasco, Montefiore tried to buy rights and Rothschild tried to buy rights and the 1929 riots broke out over the, the, the conflict at the Cosell. Now, Six Day War is unprecedented victory and the Jews can come back and have a pro- proper, respectful place for them to, to create, for Jews to daven. And the army says, let's do it. Let's clear out the Mugradi quarter and make a place for the Jews to daven. Uh, there's not explicit government orders. The, or, the government effectively went like this. Not wink. Right? Everybody knew what was going on. Um, and they went with loudspeakers, evacuate, take your, take your possessions. They went with bulldozers and... Um, they dismantled the entire Mugrabi quarter. Uh, I showed you, the, uh, some of you have seen my picture of the uh, after effects, the rubble <laughs> after that. Um, by the way, I'm not saying this is right, good or bad. I, I am describing, you know, I, I, I can't hold back. There's a certain excitement in my, in my voice as I understand that it's nice for the Jews to have a respectful place to dab it for the first time in, uh, since the Hormon by by Um I, I'm not saying that's correct, what they did. Uh, there's ambivalence, I quoted Rav Shach already. Um okay, so we can be mixed in our in our reaction to this. Now the Jews have a place to um Davin. And the goal was a complete renovation of the area and the deadline was the next Tuesday night, June thirteenth, which happened to coincide with and Lil Leil um forty-eight years ago in as of this year. So forty-eight years ago, they finally um, created a place that the Jews could, could uh, come. They, um, there was previously a narrow pavement. It could previously accommodate at most 12,000 per day. Uh, this was, in a couple days, turned into an enormous plaza like we have today. It could hold, in theory, in excess of 400,000 people. It would stretch all the way t- towards the Jewish quarter. The expanse of the wall where we had access to actually uh, touch the wall, doubled in length from 30 meters to 60 meters. Uh, the whole plaza now covered 20,000 square meters. And indeed on Hadmas and Taira, six days after the end of the war, the old city would be officially open to the public. Uh, it was a rare moment. And there were eyewitnesses uh, who described it from the late hours of the night, Jew, Jews went in mostly through Sharseon through Zion Gate, right through the what's called the Jewish quarter today. Um, at 4 a.m., they're finally allowed, can you imagine? They were they, all this all this time the coastal itself was closed. But they knew at 4 a.m., because the Jews were going to dive in Nates, in the sunrise minion by the coastal. At 4 a.m. they were allowed to the coastal area to dive in Can you imagine them been there at that time? What kind of a there were some 200,000 Oli Rego. What's that? Could I could have been one years old. It's yeah. true. Um, we were so deeply assimilated. I know my father, we had a Christmas tree. We, we got to church the first years of our lives. They, they, they wanted to escape, run away from anything Jewish. My mother's family escaped from Zagreb, Yugoslavia and had her baptized. Um, but my father was on a business trip in England and he was glued to the television set. He said, he said he, he, until year, you know, he just he thought that Israel was about to be destroyed, and um, they, they did it, it, t- it took a few years. My parents started to turn around and become uh, identified as Jews uh, about seven years later. But um, during this during this fateful Hagg uh there were only regal soldiers. There were mothers with baby carriages, old men who were held by youth, old men who had dreamt about coming to the Kosel. Uh, There was an atmosphere of calm, of cooperation. People were crying, but they were good tears. People were smiling. Uh, One person described it. He said, I've never known such an electric atmosphere before or since. Wherever we stopped, we began to dance. We'd hold up Seyfried Teira. We swayed, we danced, we sang at the top of our voices. Um, Significantly, a few weeks later, on August 22nd, the chief rabbi had put out signs all along the entrances to Harabais, to the Temple Mount, expressing a new religious ban that made on visiting the Temple Mount area. Um, interestingly, that ban, one of the rare shows of support from left wing to right wing, um, all the rabbis of the age supported the ban. Um, the idea, of course, is very straightforward. A Jew, as you well know, who's in the state of Tumas Mace, which we almost all are from birth, having been born in a hospital. If you're born in a hospital with one Jewish dead body, there's Tumas mace in an ohel, in an enclosed structure, and therefore the, and the cure for Tumas mace is, uh, among other things, you need the ashes of the paraduma. We are uh, waiting to see if this uh, candidate from Lakewood pans out wait, in the no meantime. No, wait, so, those, so those people who are say more at home. Oh, there, uh, you heard in my words that there is a possibility of some but. Um, Since that's not the case, and we know in the Temple Mount, the entire Temple Mount area is actually not off-limits. It's the area of the actual, and look look at my imaginary structure up here, it's sort of a not-perfect rectangle, like it's more narrow in the southern area. It's the central area where the Midtash actually stood. That's the problem. Somebody walks there knowingly, the Mezid, and and he's in a state of Tumas space, he's high of Kares, he, well, I mean, it's not that big of a deal. His soul dies, and his Kids all die and he dies before his time and stuff like that. Um, but um, that's Kares. Technically in the southern area, um, you could go. But the chief Rabbi has said no. They made what's called in Halacha a loplug. They said, we don't differentiate because if we allow a Jew to go up here with the state of Kali Israel today People are going to go here and think they can go here. They're going to go to the wrong place, and they made Chasa Sholom Kares for it. So they made a technical ban against that, one that's been in the last couple decades ignored even by um, rabbis, and we'll talk about them too. Um, since I'm mentioning it, uh, I'll this up. Uh, There's a rabbi who's gotten to many, many controversies, uh, Rabbi Moshe Tedler, from Mansi, law from Moshe Feinstein. Rabbi Rosen. Right, well, sure, the, um, it's his wife's family. Yeah. his wife says she's a ten. Right, right, right. So he, uh, apparently he's on YouTube, in a video, on the Temple Mount, going against his van, and there are other rabbis who do the same. And I think his defense was his schwer. <coughs> if I'm quoting this correctly, I hope I am. When he defended his action, going against all the rabbis at the time, he said that my, my father-in-law said it's permitted to go on the Temple Mount. Which is a response again? I don't. He, he's much bigger in Torah than I am. I, I don't claim to take him on. I wouldn't do that. But I don't understand his reaction because indeed, Rav Moshe Feinstein does write that it's permissible to go, let's say, in the southern area around the Al Mosque, outside of the confines of the Temple map, which is where Rav Tendler goes, um, and, and he's permitted to do that. Rav Moshe wrote that in 1963. And the truth of 1963 and dates in this case make all the difference in the world. Moshe is expressing a technical point that technically, yeah, not all of the Temple Mount is, is off limits. But Moshe would never go against a subsequent four years later ban by all the rabbis for very good reason. This low plug to make the whole area off limits. So to cite that as your heter, it doesn't make sense. When did Rabbi Moshe Feinstein that He died in 1986 or so he would have been alive right but I mean to cite the 1963 June, June was, it was, seems a little bit disingenuous 1967, he, didn't read anything on it. And he never had said there's a permit we don't have any to go up in the Temple Mount against this so they never did to grant anything uh, anyway we're not supposed to go up there I asked a friend who's a talmud in this, in this sector in the, in the Mizrahi world I said how, how do you understand that um, you know, there are rabbis who not only go up there but they promote it Um, He said, well, um, um, some of those who are in favor of going up to the Temple Mount today were among the original signers of the ban itself, and so they feel authorized and qualified to be able to go against it, which is an answer that, to my mind, is not an answer either, because um, if there is a a rare showing of rabbinic unity and people make a, a decree, you have to have very wide shoulders to go against it, even if you were one of those who originally supported it. Um, in the months following the victory, indeed, many people, especially in the national religious world, felt that they were living through the uh at the at the beginning of the redemption, the redemptive area, era. Excuse me, era didn't quite seem to work out that way. Their hopes didn't materialize during their generation, unless we miss something. Uh, I mean, maybe we do miss something. I know that Rav Kaduri, Shlita said uh, Predicted, or he actually knew this, he was a very famed uh, Kabbalist, we'll talk about him too. He, he predicted that the Mashiach uh, would appear before Ariel Sharon's death. To cite like, just one of many, many such statements of, of different gedolim who, who make such pr- pronouncements. Now, Ra- Ariel Sharon died, I don't know if you know that. Uh, he did die, he was in a coma for many years, and within the last couple of years, he passed just, away. Just two years just two years ago he passed away to my knowledge maybe you know something i don't but to my knowledge mashiach has not yet emerged so what are we supposed to do with that statement you know maybe he's here and he's still in hiding i don't know Wait, what he? he said mashiach, mashiach would emerge uh, before ariel shroom would die a- and i just cited as one of many many instances so where very you specific in a hard fact kind of a statement and this is what it, like it is like what a well respected of kaduri yeah. huge I guess not, and I don't understand it. Is all I can say. And I, I mean, and again, I mean, maybe you could say the Mashiach is. Maybe I'm Mashiach, and I don't realize it myself. The Gemara indicates the Mashiach himself doesn't always realize that he's Mashiach until he gets the job done. So maybe you are. I don't know. Uh, you know. Good luck. Okay, I'm I, uh, changing gears. Totally. Um, we're going to get back to all of this, but you know, modernity is still unfolding in a complicated uh, way with all kinds of strands and. Um, the best thing I can do for this presentation is try to weave them together. Um, let's get chassidish, little 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 little, little blasts of chassidut. Um The largest chassidus in the world today, Sabr. not Chabad, Saper, Saper. Saper. Um, with big enclaves in Williamsburg, Kiryas Joel uh, in New York, um, also down the street here in Yerushalayim and other places around the world. Um, they since the Great And we'll talk about revealed title bound the Satmar Rebbe. Uh, Since the Rebbe passed away in 1979, Satmar and increasingly has become fragmented. There are multiple figures, uh, family members vying for leadership, and different groups now. What's that? Like, it's actually Hasidic like. It's characteristic of many different dynasties. uh, To after, especially a very charismatic. Well, in this case, he's. I wouldn't say he's charismatic. He was a huge, huge Talmud scholar. One of the Gadolai encyclopedic depth, breadth, everything. The right. Yoel Moshe, Rav Yol, I mean, he was Rav Yoel title bound, enormous. However, you, whatever you have felt about his Ashtavahs, his policies, and we'll talk about them right now, uh, he was a Gadol in Taira and um, it was not replaced. And so it's very common when you have such a, a central figure for the uh, next generations to either fight over the successorship or to fall apart in this case, it's it's, it's, it's an internal struggle. Uh, there would be other groups as well, who for other reasons, each complicated each, each their own respective stories, that broke away from Satmar. So when, when um, Shomri Emunim, who let's say not far from the Mir Yeshiva there's an enclave of Shomri Emunim, the told us Avram uh, Yitzchak, the told us Aaron, uh, they broke away from Satmar. Um, you should be aware that the Naturi Karta are often confused with Satmar. Naturi Karta uh, is a tiny group of mostly Lidfish Jews. We met Rav Bloy and his wife Ruth Ben David. Um, they were a tiny, tiny group of Lidfish Jews who mainly allied with the Satmar Rebbe, but Satmar moved away from them. Naturi Karta became too radicalized for Satmar. People think Satmar is extreme sometimes, but Naturi Karta became several notches more so. The um, the Satmar Rebbe, he, he lived from 1887 to 1979, long life. Uh, he never had any children. Uh, that, of course, is part of the problem that, that Satmar has today. Uh, <coughs> he personally, you ever learn about him? Very, very, <coughs> very compelling figure. I, I'm drawn to him. I would have liked to get a bracha from him. He was modest. He... Um, you know, in Chassidus, till today, it's extremely common for the Rebbe to receive pidionos. You give money. You go to him for whatever. You go to him, but you give him money. That was the way it was. And remember, that was the criticism of the litfox back in the day. They said it looked like uh, indulgences, like uh, going to give your your priest in the Christian Church la But that's what it looked like. Um, but the Saper Rebbe was such a such a gentle personality, such a uh, and, and so modest and so non self serving. That um, he never he he would take the Pijonos to be because he didn't want to disappoint dis, um, to disappoint the petitioner, but he'd give it all away. He never kept he never kept any of it. Yeah. To Tzedaka he, he gave it to the Um There was one great story about him back in back in the whole Satu Mare, Satu Mare, Saint Mary, uh, back in Hungary. Um, that's what Satu Mare is, right? Saint Mary, back in Hungary. Um, they, he moved around a little bit and um, they, he was coming to town, wherever the town was, and there was a Kabbalist punim for the rabbi. Thousands of Hasidim were there by the train station to receive him uh, for when he came in. And uh, it was massive. Um, it, when, he, when he moved to a new rabbinic post, I don't know where it was, uh, and when he heard that there was gonna be this huge turnout of people to receive him, he, he arranged to take an earlier train and he slipped into town and nobody noticed. That was more his face. Uh, we hear of that, uh, there were other gadolin who refused to go fundraising because they couldn't stand the fanfare. They were embarrassed by it. Genuine, genuine humility. Um, famously in 1944, remember remember the Nazi zeal at the end? Hitler, they were losing on all fronts, but Hitler in his, in, his, in his single-minded zeal to kill all the Jews targeted the Hungarians who, who were must, who were mainly wiped out during the late phase of the war, so the Hungarian Jews. So in 1944, his train from Satu Mara was on the way to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. And um, very famous story, there was a um, Hungarian official uh, uh, who was Zionist, by uh, the name of Rudolf Kastner, uh, who struck a deal with the authorities. And the train that the Rebbe was on was diverted to Switzerland, and the um, 1,600 passengers' lives were saved. And the Rebbe survived He was able to come to America and uh, led a great legacy. I, I mentioned Rudolf Ka- Kastner, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll finish the story. Ilan, you know, you know his name? Kastner, the Kastner story? Kastner came to the state. He also survived the Holocaust. He was here in the 1950s, and another terrible episode from the 50s, um, he was slandered. See, because he, was a position, he wasn't in, in one of these rare Jews in a position of power during the Holocaust, he had the means and the ability to, to try to help, and there were accusations that he was uh, biased, that he took bribes, that he helped some Jews, but not other Jews, all kinds of slander against him, often unfair, to, if, I, if, if, I, if I read the stories correctly, I don't know if the sources are always accurate, whatever it was, one particular slander, he, he um, sued for defamation, and he won. And after having sued the man and having won the trial, um, within a day or two after his victory, he was assassinated by another Jew. By a religious Jew? No, not a religious Jew. By another Jew because of the, I don't know how a nation survives such a thing as a Holocaust. But you can imagine the kinds of um, conflicts that persevered, where whatever guilt they, they attribute to Kastner, was really just the residual trauma of, of 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 everything to do with the Shoah, and maybe he was. You know, I, I, it seems that he was unfairly blamed, but uh, that was the say Anyway, Kastner was the was the official who was uh, who made the fateful move of saving that train, um, and and the Satra Rebbe survived. Now, um, the Saber Rebbe's views on Zionism. Oh yeah, oh, okay. I know you do. You don't want to miss the Satmar Rebbe. You really. You, if you don't know this, this is very significant. I, I don't know what you have right now, but um, we, we've talked it all through this class. Since the Bar Kokhba revolt, we talked about the three Oaths, right? That's familiar, right? The three Oaths. You remember what they are? Um, and the, Jews can't and can't the rebel. 13th grade, the Jews, the no. Jews, what? Can't rebel. can't rebel against the nations. Can't take, take, uh, take. Take uh, by force against. And they can't too us too much. And meters. they can't uh, press us too much. Okay. Uh, in, it's the satra, we talked about the, there was Sameach's view, we've talked about the, 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 the uh, stipler, go on. So according to the Rav Teitelbaum, the three oaths are um, binding till today, and the Zionist state violates them. It's a position in halacha. He doesn't come to it out of um, hatred, as some people feel. This is what he believes. And this is what he understands. Paskin's this the He's not alone. There are others. The There were others who who, who felt the same. Um, he felt that, that um, by impatiently forcing hashem's Shem's we just talked about your question from this morning, right? Of trying to be dolchek et case like Bar That's how he perceives the modern state. Forcing the return instead of waiting for Hakadosh Baruch Hu's Ashkakha to take over. That's actually preventing the mashiach from coming is their view. Now, you can disagree. Most only don't agree with this, but it's a view. It's a position. It's even within the terms of halacha, it's a reasonable view, for the record. Again, uh, my, my rabbis don't hold like this, but the Sabah Rebbe was entitled to his opinion. He certainly was a bar hachi. Um, he broke with the Yisrael, the agudis Yisrael, the political party representing Torah Jewry, um, over everything to do with the state, the Agudah Israel officially favors participating. Remember, I read the um, Rob Grusovsky, the official pragmatic view, which is which is the mainline view uh, that that um, we should participate, we should vote, we should accept government money for the yeshivas. Um, he says none of the above. We should have nothing to do with them. Uh, they're the ones. It's Satmer Jews, Satmar uh, Hasidim who pay people n- to not vote in the Israeli elections. Just recently, we had such a, such, a, such a. We 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 saw if you, you noticed that in the news. It's like a hundred dollars or something. That's not that's not negligible. Um, he was now you have to you get this too. People hear Satmar is radical, extreme, and so on. And he the, the, the old was very opinionated and he was very sharp in formulating his opinions. But afterwards, he had a very he had a lovely personality. He often apologized, uh, saying he was opposed to ideas, he didn't mean to offend anybody personally. When there was a debate, he didn't back down, he defended his view to the end, and then afterwards tried to make nice, and tried to go over to the other side, explain what it was. And people don't see that side of his personality. Um, Rev Lawrence, who's, we sit by his grave near, um, in, in, right near the entrance to Harmenuchos, I just referred to him, in a book that I recommend, Ben Lechitz in their shadow, in English it's translated in English, we have it here in the library. So Rav Lawrence asked him, he, he said, Lord was uh, a, a member of the Knesset and was a political power and was close to the Gedolim. And he asked the Sabah Rebbe, he said, we need you, Rebbe, we want you to be on board. We need all the Gedolim, we need all the help you can get. What would pers- what could we do to persuade you to rejoin the Igodosistra? And um, the Rebbe said, nothing. And after this conversation went on, and Lawrence realized there was nothing. He was out of the job. He said, what if we officially adopted an anti-Zionist stance to your liking? And the Sabbath Rebbe said, nothing. So he wasn't sure with the Rebbe's point of view. He writes this in the book. He said, he said um, is it because you don't want your own followers to be associated in any way uh, with other views that are not like yours? And the Rebbe didn't answer so Satmar, clearly, part of his shitu was to be separate. His approach was to be separate. His chassidus should be separate Were otherwise. Among other arguments, other reasons for it, is it creates a very strong, um, let's say, proudly identifying following. I mean, it's not, it's not for nothing that the Satmar uh, chassidus is the largest in the world today. And uh, with all of its internal problems, it's, it's a robust, uh, vibrant uh, aspect of the Torah world. Um, he was asked uh, who would be somebody that we should seek a bracha from? Uh, I'll Give a very famous answer. Let me let me give it I, I often paraphrase it incorrectly. This is this is how I have it, I think this is the correct quote. He says like this. He says, if you see a man laying to fill fillin', not just any survivor, a man laying to fill fillin' and as he's laying fillin', you see that he has a number on his arm. Numbers were given only in Auschwitz. It's the only place where they put numbers on the arm. Um, He says, such a man is a kadosh, because he endured Auschwitz, and he's still putting tefillin on his arm. He said, such a man is worthy of giving you a brah. He had different shittas in halacha. I'm going to cite a few to give you a a taste. He was against ordinary people visiting Kibre tzedikim. aware, as he was in his vast knowledge, implications from the zohar means that it's a it's a it's a potent spiritual place and people could be uh could damage their neshamas by being there he felt only pure tzaddikim were of the level to to know what to do and know how to behave be in a state of physical purity and they could visit Uh, i mentioned rav moshe's view on the mechitza was a a very very lenient view Uh, he said that the only the, the um we remember too that the mechitza in america it separated men and women, but it really was the halakhic separation between the Orthodox and the conservative. That's what you, you knew you were either from or you were not. So, so this, the, the um, Rav Moshe's Psach was that it had to reach the, average, the shoulders of the average woman, and you could see her face. But the Satmar Rebbe paskened that women shouldn't be seen at all. Um, he paskened that men um, should wear strimals in America to emphasize their distinctiveness and it was radical because nobody did. I mean, maybe you have this now in your image of Hasidim around America nowadays, but in the 1950s, when he came to America, there was nothing like that. Nobody in America, there was no vibrant Hasidic culture as you have it today, and he changed everything. I I would assert to you that right-wing orthodoxy, as it's emerged in the last half a century, would not have gotten its strength had it not been for the uncompromising standard of the the Satmar Rebbe. So he said, men, be proud. And, and, and What's that? When he said that they, didn't they did oh, They did. They did. No, he's in power because they saw it. He was a genius. He was a gadol. And, and he, they, they, others would argue, you can't do that. It's America. It's different. People we'll have to get jobs. He said, no such thing. And much like we saw Ravaron Kutler not backing down to building Lakewood without compromising in Torah standards, so that, that was the Rebbe as well. He said, he said, we're not going to compromise that. A couple more little stories and then we'll, we'll, we're done. Um, he didn't stop there. Um, Paskin women should shave their hair every month before going to the mikvah. He was against wearing shaitels. So women should just cover their hair. Uh, scarves that thoroughly cover their hair. Uh, he actually invented the, uh, the thick brown stocking that all satmar women and girls wear and actually his the patent in the american patents office exists in the name of Raviol old title he patented the stocking it's the thick randy stocking that you can picture right there's no compromise in allahic standards we are going to do everything um to the utmost he um he said that um for dating the boy and girls should meet no, no more than two or three times Now, you have to realize, his standards influence religious practice around the world. Because previously, and this is true sometimes in the Gnolan, the feeling was, everybody's leaving. So you had to be conciliatory. You had to kind of compromise. You couldn't come on too strong. And especially in America, because it just seemed like there was no um, winning for the Orthodox world. But the Saba Rebbe showed you could do it. And you have to back down on one principle, that actually the penteleid, the strength of the Jew, is internal. They heard the emes, the as we know, the emes has legs, that's why all the letters can be propped up. But more, more substantially, people know when they hear the truth, and they were drawn to it. Um, and, and, and indeed, what people perceive today as a shift to the right, he is a major architect of that around the world. You could like that or not like that. There's criticism of the two. Sometimes it's a shift to the right is often a shift to unnecessary khumra and, and other other problems, other excesses. But that um, if it's shift to the right also means that there's going to be an upgrade in basic halachic observance that we owe to, we owe a great debt to the Satmar Rebbe. Uh, today Satmar is huge. It consists mostly of Hungarian, Romania survivors of the Holocaust. Um, they're not. Kiruv-oriented, it's hard to break into a Satmar world. So how are they so big? Uh, Lots of babies, lots of kids, demographics. Um, When they reached the United States in the 1950s, they set up their own communities, they wouldn't acculturate, they wouldn't compromise. Um, You have to realize, 1950s, there were wives of Gidole hador who did not cover their hair. And from the 1950s on, they started to. And there's some who, su- who suggest that when they saw the Satma women doing it, they realized, oh, I guess it can't be done. And there's actually, I can picture, I, I know it, but at least I've seen photographs of one Guggle's wife, one of the only women that we've mentioned, who in pictures of the 1950s, her hair is not covered. After the 1960s on, she had it covered. And what changed that? The Hungarian. I don't know entirely if it was the Satma, but the Satmas did it. So they set the standard, the gold standard. Um, their influence would be felt by subsequent generations on Balei Tshuva uh, and the rest. So um, eh, on Thursday, we're going to talk about um, other great groups of um, of, of Hasidim um, in Eretz Israel and in America and, and elsewhere in the world.